welcome. Thanks for being here today. Uh, before I begin, just one note that I want to make real quick. Uh, sometimes parents bring children into the services, which is fine. Uh, but I just wanted to let you know that today the message is what I would call it has a part that is slightly PG-13, okay? It's maybe more like a little bit PG-11, but I wanted you to know that anyway. And now that I have your attention, um, I was with a friend for dinner a few weeks ago, and we were talking about the news, and he said to me, he said, is it just me, or does it feel like the world fell apart overnight? Sure does feel that way a bit, doesn't it? I mean, we have uh, Ebola, a disease that's ravaging three nations in Africa, Guinea, Sierra Leone, and Liberia. Uh, just yesterday, it was reported that there are now 10,000 cases. We've crossed a threshold. There have been at least 5,000 deaths, and both of those numbers are growing seemingly out of control. Uh, these are children who are being orphaned. These are families who are being wiped out, entire large families gone, uh, villages, towns. And there are not apparently enough resources. And meanwhile, the other big news of the year is ISIS, who continues to march through Syria and Iraq, committing horrors that are unthinkable. And not just committing horrors that are unthinkable, but seeming to celebrate them and to delight in them. I think that's one of the things that's been so shocking to so many people. And we wonder, just like Ebola, if and when these people will be stopped and what is to come. Uh, things here at home in the U.S. are not too great either. Uh, politics are more contentious, I think, than they have ever been. I don't think that's a naive statement based on my age and, and time period. I, I think that's probably true. Uh, societal views on things like drug use and the definition of marriage are debated fiercely. People are combative. And every day, right, just like Friday or, or Thursday, we see a new story of another school shooting or another murder, another case of abuse, more corruption, more fraud, and how many of us in the morning when we turn on the pho our phones to see what's happened overnight wonder, what's it going to be next? When's the next shoe going to drop? We are in times that are very, very uh, uncertain, aren't we? So the times that we find in ourselves in today, I, I, I believe, have great parallel with a time uh, back in history. In fact, the, the history of Israel and in many ways, this short verse that Tom just read for us this morning is as true for our day as it was in that day. Uh, as Tom said, that small couple of sentences is a summary of the entire book of Judges. It's repeated four times, and what you're reading there is, is right at the end. It's also a summary of that time period and the experience of the people who lived in that time period. In those days, there was no king in Israel. And everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Let, let me give you just the briefest of backgrounds on what was happening there. 
Uh, Earlier, before the book of Joshua was written, we have the book of Exodus. The children of Israel, God's people, are enslaved in Egypt, and, and, and God brings up a great ruler, Moses, who frees his people from bondage, and after kind of a 40-year detour, they end up in the land that God has promised them generations ago that that he would give them. God was faithful over all of those generations. And and Moses dies. A man named Joshua, great uh, godly guy, mighty leader, takes over. And for the most part, the, the children of Israel go into the land. They conquer the land. And everything seems to be going well. But Joshua, in his generation, makes a very grave mistake. Uh, the book of Joshua tells us that they, they forgot, or maybe it's the book of um, Judges, actually, that, that this generation of Joshua, um, they failed to teach their children about God, his goodness, his faithfulness. And so uh, uh, this uh, love for God did not carry over into the next generation. And out of that, what the book of Judges describes is a period in history of Israel of absolute chaos. Okay, You read the book of Judges, and what you will find are terrible stories of rape, of horrific murders, of people treating each other awfully, of of war, of other atrocities. And it's a time in the history of Israel where Israel was oppressed by the own choices that they were making within themselves, and they were oppressed by enemies from outside of them. Terrible time period. And we're told that at that time, there was no king. There was no one, including God, who was held as an authority. And therefore, because of that, there was no standard for right and wrong. Every person's compass showed north differently, and the people did whatever they thought was best in their own eyes. I really do think this is a fitting description of our world today, Uh, particularly when it comes to moral truth, which is issues of right and wrong. Uh, Our world right now, our country right now is in the same place. We're searching for a standard and we can't seem to find one. We can't all seem to agree. Everyone thinks through their own eyes about what's right and wrong. And just like in the book of Judges, the result is chaos. When there is no standard, things begin to fall apart. And I believe that when we look at a, a newspaper, we, we see that happening e- even today. But the way that it all begins in the book of Judges is through a lack of authority. When there is no king, everyone does what is right in their own eyes. And this morning what I want to think about for a few minutes is I want to think about how the Bible portrays the authority of God his kingliness, his right to rule. And I want to think a little bit about why it makes perfect sense for us to listen to him and to trust him and to obey him. Why it is that we ought to literally, joyfully cling to him as the leader and, and ruler of our lives, even when doing so might test us or when we don't feel like it or when Everyone around us would think that we are closed-minded and crazy. I want to think this morning about why we ought to see God uh, not just as a counselor, not just as a guide, not just as a, a heavenly helper, but as the authority, the great high king of heaven and earth and the great 
high king of my humble, small life. You see, the Bible does paint an elaborate picture of God as the king. And that he's not just a king. He's not just any king. He is a good king. I want to try to show you that today. I want to try to give you three reasons why we should trust him. Some of them are intellectual reasons. Some of them are just practical reasons. Some of them are real faith reasons. Okay, And I I believe that the Bible gives us all three. So I'll tell you what they are before I share some of them with you. The three reasons why I think we should trust God, his authority, his rulership over our life, is first of all because God's existence, his power, and his authority are evident. God's authority is evident. I'll explain that in a couple minutes. Secondly, because God wields his authority like a good king. He wields it unselfishly and for our best interests. God has people's best interest at heart, always. He rules for our own good. And finally, because only God has the authority over life and death. Only God has that kind of power. Okay, so that's my outline for this morning that I want to walk you through. So the first reason is this, that we should trust God because his existence and his power and his authority is evident. It's clear to everyone that God is in charge. Okay, now, I don't want you to take that from me. Okay, I don't have the authority to say something like that. But I say that because that's what God says. That's what God teaches. If you open your Bible to the book of Romans or look at the screen behind me, uh, Romans chapter 1, verse 8. This is a really, really important section of the book of Romans, and this is a particularly important concept when it comes to God as authority. Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 20. Listen to what Paul writes. He says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. Again, this is a very important, challenging passage. What the Bible teaches is that God has embedded knowledge of himself into every human heart. Uh, Every person, great and small, old and young, the Bible says, has been created in God's image. And like a coin, which is just a piece of metal that is stamped so that its, its origins can be identified and its value can be known, God stamps his image, an imprint of part of himself within each one of us. And that image of God shows us, just like a coin, our origins. It shows us where we come from, and it shows us our our value, what we're worth. Human beings are incredibly valuable. Now, sin in in our world contaminates our lives. Uh, It taints our experience of God's imprint in ourselves and in other people. Uh, I found a coin a couple of weeks ago, and 
and it had been crushed and bent, and it was encrusted with dirt. And I had to look at it really closely to try to figure out if it was a penny or a nickel. I couldn't tell. And in the same way, sometimes the imprint of God's image in a person's life seems very dim and very hard to see. But the Bible would teach that even though that may be true, it is still there. The fingerprint of God is on the soul of every human heart, even the hardest hearts, even the cruelest people. And what Romans would say is that when we convince ourselves that there is no God, there is no authority, and when we try to live independently from God, when we try to be the masters of our own faith and be autonomous, what we're doing, he says, is we're suppressing something that we know to be true because it's been imprinted inside of us. And Paul would say that deep within all of us that we know the truth and therefore we do not have an excuse. He would say that the truth seeps out of even the sturdiest barricades around every human heart. And when a person, any person, looks around at creation, when they see the stars or the sun, or they hold up a a baby and it laughs, when they look at the complexities of the world, that imprint of God whispers Romans says, of his invisible attributes and his eternal power and his divine nature. Paul says that every person knows that there is a God, that he's in charge, but we suppress it. Let me just uh, give you one example of how this works. When we think about ideas like this, we often think that that God is is seen through nature best, uh, the complexities of the universe, the the way that our our, our Earth runs on a on an axis uh, an axis, and if it tilted either way, we'd all be dead. Things like that. Those are not the only places. There are major places that we see the existence of of God. We we see creation, and and therefore we understand there there should be a, a creator. But let me give you another example, and, and this is an example that just comes from within the human heart. It's, a, it's another evidence of the existence and the power of God, and that is human morality. A human being's sense of right and wrong points to the existence of God, and it points to the kind of God that he is, because you have to ask the question, where does morality come from? Right? If we just all come from slime, then why do we care about things so much? We're just going to go back to slime, right? Uh, one of the, the, the examples I'll give you is, is something that relates to common thinking of our day. The common thinking of our day in many cases is that there is no universal standard of right and wrong. Uh, right and wrong is something that shifts. That's called relativism. Uh, Tom talked about that a bit last week. I want to jump back to it a bit this week. Uh, relativism teaches that the truth depends on the situation. Okay? Truth depends. And so for you, you, you may feel like it's wrong to cheat on your taxes, but for me, I have certain views that I hold about government, and so it is right for me to teach on my taxes. And what I believe as a relativist, uh, relativist is that it's right for you not to, but it's right for me too because the truth really depends on the situation. See, So right and wrong shifts with time, and it shifts with the tastes of different people and different societies, okay? 
And in this way of thinking, the standard for right and wrong has to come from one of three different places. You can see it behind me on the screen. Uh, First of all, that thinking has to come as a view that the the individual is the authority, right? So a relativist might say that, that the particular person determines right and wrong for his or herself. They make up their own standard. Uh, Another uh, way of looking at this would be to say that the majority decides what's right and wrong. And in a culture, people band together, let's say in a nation, and they all vote and decide on what's right and wrong. And so that becomes the standard. It's whoever the majority is, they determine what's right and wrong. The people decide together. And another source for right and wrong might just be powerful people. If you have a military dictator who comes in, he determines or she determines what's right and wrong, and the people don't have the choice. But in this view of thinking, do you see that right and wrong always depends on something? Okay, It depends on that individual. It depends on who's in power. It depends on what the laws are that govern that particular society. Now, here's the problem with this thinking. Uh, Hopefully, this will make sense. You can really see it clearly in a group like ISIS. Okay? ISIS is going around, and they are decapitating innocent children in front of their parents. Okay? It's horrible. If you say to a relativist, is it ever okay for someone to decapitate an innocent child in front of their parents, is there ever a situation in which they would say yes? Well, they kind of have to, don't they? Don't they kind of have to say, well, if that individual terrorist really believes it's right for them, then I guess it is right for them. But they wouldn't say that, would they? They wouldn't say, well, if a country makes laws and decides that it's okay, then it's okay, right? They wouldn't say that. They wouldn't say that it's okay for a person who's in power to decapitate innocent children. If you said to them, if everyone in the world thought it was okay to decapitate innocent children, would that be okay? I doubt that you could get a relativist to say yes. You see? No matter who's in power, no matter who thinks it's right or wrong, no matter if the whole world says it's okay, it is never, ever right to decapitate a child in front of their parents. And what you have there is you have something that's very different from this kind of truth. You have what's called a universal standard of right and wrong. And what most people would believe is that it is valid in all places, in all times, in all situations. It's never right to decapitate a child in front of their parents, and that doesn't depend on anything. It trumps the individual. It trumps the culture and society. It trumps whoever's in power. It's always wrong. And a truth like that, hopefully this will make sense, it has to come from outside of this system. It has to stand above all of these categories. This kind of standard logically can only come to one, from one place. It has to come from a place that's greater than people. It has to come from God. In other words, if there's a standard that exists right that, like that, there must be an authority that is behind it. And one of the greatest evidences that we have of God's existence and authority it isn't just what's around us but it's also what's inside of us. People are designed with a moral compass. We do have a sense of right and wrong. 
We do believe that there are standards that are universal and should never be broken and are valid for all times and all situations and all people. And if those standards exist, then there's got to be an authority that exists behind it. Do you see the logic of that? I hope that makes somewhat sense. See, the evidence for God's authority is not just out here in creation. It is there too. But it's inside of us. God has embedded his knowledge the knowledge of his authority inside every human heart and God's existence and his power and his authority, he says, is evident. And the reason that I spend the time to say all of that is that part of why Christians can really trust in God's authority, his right to rule, is because when we look around at the nature of reality, and when we read that passage in the book of Romans, and when we think about who we are and what we think and, and believe, we, we can say to ourselves, there must be a God. There must be a God. It must be true. Well, the second reason, a second reason, that we can really trust in God's authority and rule over our lives is, is based on the kind of authority he is based on the kind of king he is. The Bible teaches that God wields his authority. He uses his authority entirely unselfishly. That God rules with his people, us, with our best interests in mind, even if we're not aware of it, even if we don't realize it. Uh, there's a verse that was written by John in the book of 1 John uh, chapter 5, verse 3. You don't have to turn there, but I'll put it on the screen behind you. And it's really quite a statement. It's really worth considering, honestly, even, even beyond this morning. But what John writes in just two sentences is this. He says, for this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. Okay? Think about that statement. This is a bold statement by John. This is the love of God that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. Now, let me ask you this question. Uh, God's commands, okay, what he asks us to do and how he asks us to live, um, do you believe that they are really not a burden? Okay? If you're a person who's not a Christian who is sitting in this room or, or maybe somebody else who reads this passage, I would think that that statement would be impossible to imagine, right? Because Christianity, to many people who are not uh, Christians, is like a set of impossible rules that, that they might think, who could ever keep those? And, and why would you ever want to get involved in something like that? And to many Christians, too, they have the same feeling. They, they just might say it a little nicer. Uh, they might say, yeah, the things that God commands me to do, they're kind of a drag, you know. And honestly, they are kind of a burden, but, you know, it's like a package deal. It's just what you have to do to... to you know, make sure that uh, you're, you're right with God, right? I remember uh, talking to a guy one time. Uh, we were in a prison. I was speaking with him. Uh, they're visiting this person. And um, we were talking about lust that came up. And uh, he, said, uh, he said to me, he asked me a question. He said, when it comes to women, he said, it's okay to look, but you can't touch, Right? Isn't that kind of what the standard of the Bible is? You can look, but you can't touch. Can't have an affair, but I can think about one. 
And I said to him, well, actually, uh, Jesus' words are a lot stronger than that. Uh, Jesus taught that if you look at a woman with lustful intent, you've already committed adultery with her. Those were his exact words. And uh, he heard me say that, and you should have seen the look of shock on his face, shock and horror at the same time. Um, I remember him saying, he said, what? He said, how could God ever ask anyone to do that? Right? What he was saying is, how is that not an incredible burden? In fact, how is that not an impossible burden? And then he said, who does it hurt if I look lustfully at somebody but I don't touch? It's like this rule that God has made doesn't even make sense because there's no real victim even. And this morning, let me just play that out a little bit to prove a point. Let's think about this for just a few minutes. This is the PG-11 part, by the way, in case you were wondering. Why would God forgive? Why would God forbid lust? Okay? Why would he forget it, forbid it? Why would he say, it's not that you can look, but you can't touch, but I don't even want you to look, okay? And let's do this. Let's take God and sin completely out of the equation, okay? Let's just pretend that it's just people here, okay? God's not part of it. Well, um, we uh, have an industry that caters to lust, right? Uh, lust, like anything, the more that you feed it, the more it grows. And so out of human lust, we have an industry called the porn industry. We're all, we all know about that. Uh, the porn industry, if you listen to people who speak for our culture, uh, those people would say that it is victimless, right? It's people who are thinking things in their minds, but it doesn't work itself out, and so it's not that big of a deal. The porn industry is like a business. There are people who are paid, and they profit from that, and there are people who do the paying, and they receive the goods, and it all works out and equalizes. I'm going to think about that just for a couple of minutes. Did you know this? Um, the, the pornography industry, it tends to employ women who are aged 18 to 21. That's the average age, or I think the majority age, maybe I should say, of uh, women who are involved in that industry. They're 18 to 21. Um, I'm 38 years old, and some of you in this room, you think about me as being 38 years old, like, wow, he's pretty old, you know? Uh, Some of you, you think about me being 38 years old, and you think, he's really young, right? But I I think just about everybody who is in this room would say that a woman who is 18 to 21 years old is very young. That's very young. Uh, In fact, I think you could say that a woman who is 18 to 21 in, in many ways is still a girl. And these women who are involved in the porn industry are girls. Um, Now, people would say they are not victims, and I know what the law would say. The the law would say that if a woman is 17 years old on the last day of being 17, then she's a victim. And society gets in in an uproar if she's a part of the porn industry then. But what happens is she goes to bed that night and she wakes up the next morning and she's 18 and so she's not a victim anymore. She's, she's, she's fair game now. Something happened uh, just right over that birthday and 
Now she's not. But I, I think the truth is that that woman is a victim of something, right? An 18 to a 21-year-old girl who's involved in the pornography in industry is a victim of something, even if it's just a culture that has convinced her that that's okay and that's a good thing to do and it's a great way to make a living. Uh, many of the 18 to 21-year-old girls who are a part of the industry are abused, uh, have been abused and are abused. Many times they're addicted to drugs. They have extremely low self-worth. And oftentimes the story is that an 18-year-old girl will, will run away from home and she'll be in a new city. She'll get involved in the industry and she'll be making about $2,000 a week. Okay, so she's bringing home 10 grand every month. And she's not doing a lot of work for that. It's not taking up a lot of her time. So she's got a lot of time and she's got a lot of money. And now there's other men who are interested in her as well, not so much for her body, they'll take that on the side, but they're more interested in her money. And what they know is that if, if they can get her addicted to drugs, that they will have access to that money. And so she gets addicted to drugs and she falls under the influence of these men and she does not have another place to go. She can't go home. She feels too dirty. She can't come to a church. She feels she's too dirty for God there. She has no place to go. And what she becomes effectively is a slave. She's trapped. She's stuck. She's addicted. She feels hopeless. And there is something within this girl who's trapped that is incredibly broken. Now, the person who views her work, that person is benefiting from her brokenness, right? If this woman is a victim, then the, the man, or in today's day, it could be a woman who benefits from her work, is enjoying the fact that she's victimized as a person. And what we've done in, in the U.S. Is, is rather than say, we have to stop this. We have to do something for these women and men and others who are victims of this industry. What we do is we throw all kinds of money at it and we support it. The pornography industry um, makes $10 billion every year. $10 billion is more than all of the major sports combined make in a year. This is NFL football. This is baseball. This is hockey. All of those sports together don't equal the amount of money that's put into the pornography issue, uh, industry. And, and with the NFL, people got real upset, you know, because of the helmet thing, and, and these guys were getting, being, you know, having concussions, and they were victims, and that's true. I think that is a big deal, and something should be done. But nobody ever talks about these women. And God says, control lust. God says, battle lust. Where does this whole thing come from with all of these victims? The seeds of it are lust. And God says, Jesus says, if you would deal with the seeds, if you would just deal with the seeds, you won't end up with the forests. And this is just one standard of Jesus, right? You could do that with every standard. And that very one, I'm just talking about one series of victims. I'm not talking about how it's impacted families and children uh, I'm not talking about the kinds of attitudes that, that young men in our society grow up with and young women do. I'm not talking about how 
uh, it causes uh, uh, eating disorders and anxiety, particularly for women, divorce rates, um, sexual abuse, rape, uh, sexual slavery. All of those things are, are, are like the trees that grow up from the seed. And God says, out of love to us, I deal with the seed. Don't, don't allow lust to get root in your heart. I'm trying to say in all of this is that everything that God asks us to do, even if it might be hard, it's for our good. It's for the good of the people around us. And that is why John can say his commandments are not burdensome. You see, the real burden comes when we do what's right in our own eyes, when we don't listen to them. Temptations are a big battle, no doubt about it. And it's not easy to follow commandments like that. And so in, in some sense, in a way that John didn't mean it, it can be a burden. It can be difficult. And we, we thank God that he forgives us, right? When we, when we mess up, Jesus died for those sins, and, and we come to him to free us and forgive us and help us. But we're told that when we go through trials of, of any kind, God walks with us and helps us when we invite him to. He doesn't leave us to battle things on our own. Thank God, because we would always lose. But temptations are really worth fighting, Jesus said. It's really worth fighting. And when a person is flirting with things that they know they shouldn't flirt with, when there's a door that they're tempted to walk through that seems so appealing, a door of relief or escape or some kind of quick gain or pleasure, the question that we've got to ask ourselves is this. Is, is God a good king? And, and are his standards really good for me? Or is what I see in, in my culture, is what I read in a self-help book, is what I feel ought to be right in my own eyes, is that better for me? And it's a question of who we trust. And John said... For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments. What's interesting about that is he doesn't say by keeping his commandments, we love God. He says that God loves us when we keep his commandments. And what that means is this, is when you keep God's commandments, you have a different kind of life. You have a different kind of experience. And God loves us by giving us good things. He gives us good standards that are for us and not just for him. And finally, finally, we trust God not just because evidently he does exist and have authority. We trust him not just because the things that he tells us to do are good for us, even sometimes when that's hard to see. But we trust him because the Bible teaches that God has one thing that no other one has and that is authority over sin and death and the grave. And I'll mention this one just a little bit more quickly. I want to tell you a story, and I want to read you a passage. There uh, was some news that came out of Africa this week that has to do with uh, Ebola. A mother came to a hospital in a village, and uh, she was very much obviously infected with Ebola, and with her she was carrying a baby daughter. And um, the mother was dying. The baby daughter, they weren't sure whether or not she had Ebola, but it was likely that she did because she 
had uh, been uh, breastfed from her mother, but the baby was not showing symptoms. Um, now, the mother sadly died, and there were two nurses who were responsible for the case. Now, what these nurses were told to do is, is they were told to take this baby and put it in isolation. And so apparently there was a box in some corner of some distant room that was set away from all these people. And the nurses could not bear to, to do this to the baby, uh, whether the baby had Ebola or, or not. Their hearts for this child, their compassion welled up within them. And so rather than doing that, they took the baby and they brought the baby into their break room and they, they cared for this baby. It's a wonderful story of compassion. There were other nurses who were in that break room too, eight or, eight or nine others. As it turned out, the baby did have Ebola and the baby died. And the nurses who um, took care of, of this baby, they died too. And I think like six or seven of, of, um, of the other nurses that were in the room, they all died. And it's a terrible story. And this story brings this uh, about in me and, and, and maybe in you in part because they had so much compassion. They tried so hard. But on the other hand, there was nothing they could do. They, they did not have any power. Couldn't do anything. They couldn't save the baby. They couldn't save themselves. And in so many ways, this is our position in life. In so many ways, with all the problems of the world around us, all of the problems in our life, all of the brokenness and mess in this world, one thing that is so frustrating about life is that we can have compassion for the circumstances and we can want so hard for things to change and to be right. But the problem is we have no power. Our government, although they'd like us to believe that they do, ultimately has no power, right? And life for us, when we turn on the news, we realize more and more can change in a heartbeat. I want to close by showing you what real power is. I'd like, if you could, to, to flip to the book of Revelation, chapter 1. I was going to put it on the screen, but it seemed to take away from the sense of the passage to put it up on PowerPoint. So if you could turn there, it's a short passage, Revelation chapter 1, verse 12. This is John, again, he, he wrote the, the, the verse that we just read. This is John describing seeing Jesus, okay? But he's not describing seeing Jesus as the baby that we picture. He's not describing Jesus as the man who is beaten and broken, uh, dying for our sins on the cross. He describes the risen Jesus, the Jesus who defeated death and sin and Satan in the grave. The Jesus who the Bible says we are to entrust our souls and our destiny to. This is how he describes that Jesus. Verse 12. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. 
His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun, shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades, the grave. And I would end just by asking you this question. Into whose authority do you entrust your soul? Into whose authority do you entrust your destiny? And the Bible would teach that the only authority that we have is the only authority that we could ever want. The high king of heaven who loves us, whose authority makes sense, and it's good for us, and it is our only hope in this life and the one to come. Let's pray together. Father, we do live in a world where there is no human king and where everyone does what's best in their own eyes. Help us to see you as you are, as our great high king who gave up your throne to come to our messy world and to enable our hearts to be right. Thank you that you hold the keys to life and death and you offer us relationship with you through your son. Thank you that we can trust you. Thank you that what you tell us is what's good for us and right for us. We thank you for the, the love that you have for little people like us.